Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews, chapter 2. I'll read verse 13 down through verse 17. Hebrews, chapter 2, and verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In our recent sermons, we've been looking at Jesus as the man of faith. And here the writer to the Hebrew believers, he speaks of the humanity of Jesus when he came into the world as a man. In the beginning of verse 14, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He likewise also partook of the same, the same flesh and blood, the same humanity that belongs to all of his brethren, he took to himself. And then again in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Jesus made like us in all things. And when he says in all things, he means in all things except sin. And this is how Jesus was to live his life upon earth. This is how we should see him in the Gospels as a man with all of our weakness, our limitations, and infirmities, and he lived in this world of sin and under a curse as we ourselves must live. With all of his temptations, in the trials, the sufferings, in every way, with all of our needs, with our cares, and with our dependency upon God. He had always been God from eternity, the Son of God with the Father in heaven, but by his incarnation, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he took our humanity to himself, and he became God and man in one person forever. And in his life upon earth, he laid aside the privileges of his divine nature, that he might pass through this life as we do, and come to know our experience our human struggles and woes, that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 17, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, in all things, in all temptations, trials and afflictions as we are, yet without any sin. And central to his life on earth was that he had to live 
a life of faith. And this is what he says back in the beginning of verse 13, where he says, I will put my trust in him. This was the guiding principle, the rule of his entire life, which he declares before he came into the world, I will put my trust in him, in my heavenly father. Just as he said in chapter 10 in verse 7 and Psalm 40, Behold, I come, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Here he says, Behold, I come into the world in my incarnation, and this is how I will live all my life. I will put my trust in him. In the days of his flesh, this is how he would live, the kind of man he would be, a man who lived in complete dependence upon his heavenly Father, a man of confidence in his Father's word and in the promises of God alone for all things, a man of faith like all his brethren had to be. I will put my trust in thee. Thus far in our study, we have seen the faith of Jesus in two stages of his life. First, Jesus' faith from the manger from the earliest days of his life. Psalm 22 and verse 9. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. And then we saw his faith as he continued to grow in the knowledge of God when he came to the feast in Jerusalem as he was 12 years old. And even at that point in his life, he had come to know from the Holy Scriptures that the God of heaven was his heavenly father. And he could say to his parents, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And second, we have begun to see the faith of Jesus during his public ministry his temptations by the devil. Just as our faith must be tested, his faith had to be tested as well, and each temptation was a testing of his faith. Would he continue to trust in the promises of God? Would he continue to put his confidence in the will of God? Or would he shrink back from faith, and would he take matters into his own hands and find some other easier and more comfortable path for him to live. But Jesus resisted the devil, firm in his faith, and overcame every temptation against him. And this morning we looked at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36, and we can turn back to that verse, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36. And what we saw from this verse and on through chapter 11 and into the beginning of chapter 12, that the main themes in these chapters is faith and endurance. The faith that produces endurance in doing the will of God in the Christian life. This is what the Hebrew believers needed because of the pressure and the persecutions that they were under. And this is what the writer says here in verse 36. He says to them, you have need for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. First comes 
First must come the endurance in doing the will of God. Then comes the fulfillment of the promises of God. But how can we obtain strength for the endurance, the strength of endurance we need in doing the will of God? And the only answer comes by faith, which is what the writer shows us in chapter 11 as he goes through all those men and women of faith. They all endured in doing the will of God, and they did so by faith. And then he brings us in chapter 12 and verse 2 to the greatest man of faith who ever lived, to Jesus And we are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, he says, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's how they received the strength of endurance by faith in him, the perfect man of faith, the pioneer of faith and the captain of our salvation. So it really works both ways. We look to him by faith. And then we receive from him increasing and continuing measures of faith as he is the author and the perfecter of faith, the perfect man of faith who has gone before us in all things. And so we receive endurance that we need to do the will of God. This evening we continue to look at Jesus, the man of faith. We are still looking at his faith in in the time of his public ministry and we may begin tonight by saying that everything which verse 36 speaks of to us it also speaks of in regarding Jesus just as we need endurance in doing the will of God in this world of sin so Jesus had need of endurance as well in the trials and sufferings of his life, that he might do the will of God and accomplish everything the Father had given him to do, that he might receive the kingdom and a people and glory that was set before him in the promises of the word of God as the Savior. The great concern of Jesus' life was always to be doing the will of his heavenly Father the will of God. And whoever had greater need of endurance through all the temptations and the dangers and the oppositions that he faced, who had greater need of endurance through the obstacles, the rejections, the disappointments of his ministry than Jesus And how did he receive that endurance that he needed? By faith in his heavenly Father and in God's promises, just as all his brethren received endurance by faith as well, as he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 11, in all of those men and women of faith, just as with them, They endured by faith, so Christ endured in doing the will of God by faith as well. This is what we see in the Gospels, that the entire desire of Christ in his life was to be doing the will of his heavenly Father. He wearied himself 
in painful labors, and he spent all of his strength to do his Father's will. In John chapter 4, we find him tired by the well in Samaria, and he sits down by that well, and he had no food and no drink. He asked the woman at the well, give me a drink. And then he went on to promise her the living water of the Holy Spirit, and she recognized him to be the Savior of the world. When his disciples returned with some food, they requested him, and they said, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to him, to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He meant this is the whole purpose of my life. This is the highest desire of my soul. This is what satisfies me above all other things. This is what I must always be doing. I must be doing the will of God and the will of my heavenly Father who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And we see this throughout his entire ministry. John chapter 6 and verse 38, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And what endurance Jesus needed to do the will of God under the constant pressures, troubles, and struggles of his earthly life. He came to Jerusalem for the last time in John chapter 12, and he knew the hour of his death had come. He said, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And there came a voice out of heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. When he came to the Last Supper on the night before his crucifixion, his disciples were filled with distress and sorrow and anxious cares when they heard that he would soon leave them. Only he knew how he was going to leave them by the agony and the suffering of the cross. But he showed his continuing trust in his heavenly Father by his calm composure and his patience with them throughout that night. And in that long discourse that he gave them of love, compassion, and promise to them. And then he left that, he closed that supper with that prayer in John chapter 17. A prayer that was filled with expressions of his perfect trust and confidence in his heavenly father. And he said, Father, the hour has come. I have glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work that thou hast given me to do, having endured and done all the will of God. And now, he said, glorify thou me, together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have put my trust in thee, he said, and that was still the, word, the rule of his life, even to the very end. And 
The peace of God that surpasses all comprehension was guarding his heart and mind even on the eve of his crucifixion. I will put my trust in thee. He came to the Garden of Gethsemane. The will of God was still the great desire of his soul as he fell down in agony and cried, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And so verse 36 here can be read of Jesus in his life of faith. If ever there was a man who needed endurance to do the will of God that he might receive that which was promised, it was Jesus. And he received the endurance through faith as all his brethren might do. The promise that he was looking for was the promise of a kingdom, the promise of a people, and the promise of glory and salvation for those whom the Father had given him. The promise that we look for are the promises of salvation that we have through him. But as we proceed tonight, we should ask the question, how does faith produce the endurance that we need through the trials and sufferings of life? How does faith work in this way to give us the endurance we need to do the will of God. Whether we speak of ourselves or whether we speak of Jesus, the answer will be the same in him as it is in us. How does faith produce endurance? The answer is that faith enables us. Faith enables us, even in the midst of our trials, when we are under the burden and the weight of them, Faith enables us to look above and beyond them to the great and mighty God and to his promises and to be convinced that he will make good on every word he has spoken. Faith enables us to see through the darkness of this present world and its struggles and trials to the light and to the truth of his promises. The writer tells us in chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is always based on the promises of the word of God. The things spoken of in verse 1 are the things that are promised in the word. We do not now possess them, and we cannot now see them, but yet faith is is likened to spiritual eyes by which we can see them from afar. Faith gives us the assurance that we shall soon have what we hope for, and faith convinces us of the reality and the truth of things that we cannot now see. Trials, trials are always a temptation to turn aside from the will of God to some other easier and more pleasant way. Trials cause us to take pause. Trials cause us to take stock of the 
of the promises and to ask the question, are the promises really true? And can the word of God really be trusted? Trials put pressure upon us to ask the question, are the promises worth my endurance through this present trial? Is it worth, are the promises worth the cost that I must pay and the suffering that I must endure and the loss that I must face to do the will of God that I might receive what was promised? These are the questions that trials always bring upon us. But faith, faith always gives an affirmative answer to all of these questions. Faith assures us, yes, the promises of God are true. And every word he has spoken can be trusted. And it is impossible for him to ever lie in his word. And not only this. But faith assures us that the things promised are worthy of our present suffering. And though we must bear up under trials now, and though we may suffer the loss of many things in this present world, faith assures us that when the end comes, we will never be disappointed when we are brought into that world, we will receive everything we have hoped for and every promise of God will be fulfilled exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could have ever asked or think. This is how faith upholds us and strengthens us with endurance through every danger and trial that we must endure to do the will of God that we may receive what was promised. We can only now hope for what is promised and we cannot see with our physical eyes what has been promised in the world to come, but faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We may think of it in this way as well, that trials bring us to a why in the path of life. As if we were hiking on a trail through the woods and we come to a Y in the trail. And we have two paths before us, one to the right and the other to the left, and we must make a decision as to which path we should take. And one path is the will of God. And at the end of that path lies the promise of the word in the end. The other path is the path of disobedience, the path of unbelief. It is a more comfortable and a more pleasant path, but it is not the path of God's will and it has no promise at the end. Which path will we choose? We always choose. We always choose that path which seems best. But only faith, 
Only faith can enable us to see the promise at the end of the path of God's will. And so only faith enables us to have the endurance and to choose that path that we might do the will of God and then in the end receive what was promised. And as it is with us in all of our life, so it was with Jesus in all of his life, in all of his trials and temptations. He was made like us in all things and he lived like us in all things and tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He is the greatest example of enduring faith, Jesus, the man of faith. The writer continues to speak here in chapter 10 and verse 37 and 38, which we will look at tonight. He says in verse 38, For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The writer here quotes from the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, and verses 3 and 4. In verse 37, the writer clearly applies this to Jesus as the one who is coming. He gives it here as an encouragement to those who are under persecution that they might endure their trial lest it would be, it would seem to be too long and too heavy for them to bear. And so he assures them that it is only a very little while. It is only a short time before he will return from heaven at the last day. The second coming of Jesus is often in the New Testament a strong encouragement to suffering saints. Because when he comes, faith will be turned to sight. And we will see him in all of his glory and all of the endurance, the sufferings and the persecution of this world will come to an end. And we will never see any of it again. James tells us in chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He is the one who is soon coming. Peter wrote to suffering believers in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, he said, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. From our perspective in this world, the second coming of Jesus seems to delay just as his first coming seemed to do for believers of the Old Testament. But his second coming is no less certain than his first. And when the hour that God has fixed, and when the clock of God's timing strikes, that he has predestined, the Son of God will come down from heaven in all his glory and majesty, and every man will see him. 
and he will gather his people to himself in his eternal kingdom. Time is not measured by the Lord as it is with us. Peter says, let not this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So verse 37 speaks clearly of Jesus Christ. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. The question is, if verse 37 speaks so clearly of Christ, then who does verse 38 speak of? Who is the righteous, my righteous one, in verse 38? Verse 38 says, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The answer to that question, who does verse 38 speak of, is that it speaks, it does speak of us and all believers, because we are God's righteous ones by the righteousness of Christ, and we must live by faith, and we must not shrink back from that life of faith and the will of God, or God will have no pleasure in us. But verse 38 must also refer to Jesus. And we may say that perhaps it refers first and primarily to him because he is the greatest man of faith, the pioneer of faith who has paved the way of faith for all his brethren. And I give you four reasons why this may be so quickly. First, the subject of verse 37 is clearly Christ. The subject of verse 37 is clearly Christ, and there is no reason for the subject to change in verse 38. Second, the subject in verse 38 is singular throughout. He does not say in verse 38, my righteous ones, but my righteous one, singular. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he, singular, shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, singular. Singular in verse 38. A third reason is, my righteous one, in verse 38, is, of course, Jesus Christ above all others, because he is God's only true righteous one. And then a fourth reason is that Jesus is the preeminent man of faith, which is the theme that we are seeing here in the book of Hebrews. He was made like us in all things, that he might live like us in all things, be tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, so that everything that pertains to us pertains to him first. And so he must be the one who lives by faith and paves the way of faith for all of us. So Christ, the one coming in verse 37, is also first my righteous one who must live by faith in verse 38. Verse 38, yes, it refers to all believers, but it must also include our Lord Jesus Christ, 
The second half of verse 38 says, And if he shrinks back, if he shrinks back from his life of faith, if he turns, if he turns away from his dependence and his trust in me, then the Father speaks here. It is the Father who is speaking. My soul, he says, has no pleasure in him. A modern commentator, Mark Jones, writes on verse 38 that this verse in all its parts refers primarily to Christ. He not only lived by faith, but he was also under a constant threat that if he shrank back, God would have no pleasure in him. If he ever shrank back as a man from that life of faith, dependence, trust in his heavenly Father, in all the sufferings and the dangers and the anxieties of his life, if he ever shrank back in trusting his heavenly Father for any help, then his heavenly Father would have no pleasure in him. He had to live by faith, trusting in him for all things, for strength in his human weakness, for protection as the scribes and the Pharisees came to seize him and put him to death before his time had come. He faith, faith in his father's care, faith in his father's provision and wisdom in all of his daily needs. Whatever suffering Jesus passed through, whatever trial came upon him, he had to have faith in God and to trust him and to put his full confidence and reliance upon him and his promises as they were found in his word. As we must trust in the word of God and the word of God is the only source of our knowledge of the promises of God, so Jesus had to trust in the scriptures, in the word of God that he had learned and there alone he would find the promises by which he could look to as by faith. Faith is the highest way that any man can glorify God. As weak, dependent creatures, faith is the highest way that we can glorify him. Because faith is to gratefully acknowledge him to be the God who he has revealed himself to be in his word. To put trust confidence in him, to rely upon him as the God of sovereignty and wisdom in all the affairs of life, as the God as he has revealed himself in scripture, as the God who is always good and righteous, a God of faithfulness to every promise that he has made, a God of kindness who will never forsake those who trust in him, a God of generosity who will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Faith, faith glorifies God because it trusts in him as the God as he has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. This is why the author of this book of Hebrews says down in chapter 11 and verse 6, in the beginning of the verse, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please him 
faith, trust, and confidence in God is the only possible way to please him. It was unbelief in God's word which led to the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, and so it has been ever since. Unbelief leads to rebellion, and faith is the only way to please and glorify God. Without faith, it is impossible, it is impossible for any man to please God, including our Lord Jesus Christ as a man. Philip Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, he writes this about this faith in verse 6. He says, to abandon faith is to behave as though God were not there. The man without faith is the man who wickedly attempts to suppress the truth about God. He cannot possibly be included in the number of those who please God. To repudiate faith is to sever the lifeline that links the creature to the creator. And it is to thus lose the very meaning and purpose of one's existence. And all of that was true of Jesus as well. If he were to shrink back from his complete confidence in his heavenly father, at any time, at any point of his sufferings, temptations, and disappointments, it would have been for him to behave as though God were not there, as a man who wickedly attempted to suppress the truth of God. It would have been for him to sever the lifeline which connects the creature to the creator. It would have been for him to lose the very meaning and the purpose of his existence as a creature. And if he had ever turned back from his confidence and trust in God, from that point forward, he could have never pleased his heavenly father. He would have fallen under God's curse and our salvation would have been doomed. This is what the writer is telling us back in verse 38 at the end of chapter 10. Jesus as a man could never at any moment of his life ever shrink back from his faith, from his confidence, from his trust in his heavenly father. Even in the severest trial, in the heaviest temptation and the struggles of his life, if he were ever to cease his faith and complete confidence in God, he would have ceased to glorify God and the curse of God would have fallen upon him. The father says at the end of verse 38, if he shrinks back, if he shrinks back from this faith and this confidence in me, says the father, he says, my soul, he says, my soul, as if to tell us how deep and intense his displeasure would be, he says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we know how Jesus lived the perfect life of faith and glorified his father in all things. 
and the Father could always say of him out of heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom my soul is well pleased. He was always pleased with his beloved Son by his constant faith and confidence in him. We often think of Jesus' obedience to the Father as something external, an outward obedience to the commandments of the law. That was true. But the obedience of Jesus extended down into the deepest recesses of his soul, where there was perfect faith, confidence, trust, and submission to his heavenly Father at all times. We know by our own experience how easy it is to distrust God. Some little trouble comes upon us and how quickly we lose our confidence and we stumble and fall into unbelief. Even the minor troubles of daily life in this fallen world, we quickly think God must have forsaken me, forgotten me in this trial. He must not be with me in this trial. We fret, we worry, and we look for some other way of relief than to put our confidence and trust in him. We begin to doubt the sovereignty and the goodness and the wisdom of God when troubles fall upon us and how easy it is for such thoughts to rise in our souls and how hard it is for us to trust him truly. But there could be no such doubt in the heart of Jesus. There could be no such unbelief. The words of Hebrews 2 and verse 13 had to continually rise from his soul. I will put my trust in him. A promise as like a promise to his heavenly father when he came into this world. This is how I will live before you, my heavenly father at all times. I will put my trust in you. And Jesus never deviated in the least way, even at the point of his deepest trial of life, even in the contradiction of sinners against him that he endured, and even as he endured the cross, which we'll look at next Lord's Day, that he always looked to his heavenly Father with confidence and trust in him. It was soul-to-soul pleasure between the Father in heaven and the Son of God on earth. The soul of the Father in heaven who sees the hearts of all men and knows all things could look down into the soul of his beloved Son and there he would find only complete trust and confidence in him and in his word in Holy Scripture. I will put my trust in thee, was what he found, and the Father was filled with the highest pleasure. And so he could say, this is my beloved Son, in whom my soul is well pleased. We close our time tonight with three brief applications of what we have seen. And the first is, 
we see the humility and the condescension of the Son of God for our salvation. Who could ever have imagined, unless we were told in Holy Scripture, that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, would come down from heaven as a man, and as a man, the incarnation in itself is the great mystery of the condescension and the humiliation of Jesus. But not only that, but as a man, he would take our weakness such that he had to live a life of faith and put his trust always in his heavenly father. This is the humility and the condescension beyond what we could ever comprehend the Son of God who had infinite power to do all things at all times throughout eternity is now found in such weakness that he must say, I will put my trust in him. And why did he do so? For one reason only, for our salvation, that he might come and take his place among us as our brother and make us his brothers and sisters and save us from our sins and bring us back to God in heaven. The second thing we see here is that by faith alone can we be saved. That's what all of us, any of us who do not know the Lord tonight need to know. As Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us, without faith it is impossible to please God our good works can never please him. Our human efforts can never merit any favor from him. He has already given the perfect savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all he calls sinners to do is come to Jesus by faith, by confidence in him, by resting upon him, trusting him in all that he has done in his righteousness and blood to forgive us of all of our sins. We are justified by faith alone, without any works of the law. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The last thing we say is that Jesus is our example to glorify God in all of our trials. How can we glorify God in the midst of our trials? The only answer is by faith, by looking to him, by trusting in him for all things. What was true for Jesus is true for us as well. The way to glorify God in our trials, our struggles, and all of our needs is to put our trust in him. And we must follow Jesus' example in the darkness in the discouragements and the troubles of life. As Jesus said, so we must say as well, I will put my trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Father and gracious God in heaven, thank you for your glorious Son, whom you loved and whom we love as well that you have given him to us to be our savior and to be the great captain of our salvation, the pioneer 
who has gone before us and paved the way of faith that we may follow him in all things. Thank you for him, Lord Jesus. Be with us now throughout this week and teach us, guide us, and strengthen us and send your Holy Spirit upon us who are your people to strengthen us and endure us, give us that endurance that we need to do the will of God. And for those who do not know you, we pray, Lord Jesus, may you open their eyes to see you and to come to you, to love you and to obey you as the Savior. We ask for these mercies and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.